Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Dylan from Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are so happy to have with us a return guest on tonight, Steve Flink. Steve is a sports journalist who has been a columnist and editor with such magazines as World Tennis Magazine, Tennis Magazine, Tennis Week, and Tennis Channel. In 2017, Steve was elected to the International Tennis Hall of Fame in the contributor category. Tonight, we will focus on Steve's newest book, which is called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. It is my privilege again to welcome to the pod, Steve Flink. Steve, thank you again for uh, spending some time tonight and talking some tennis with me. Dave, it's great to be back with you on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate it. And you know, the listeners, if you want to hear our original podcast, Steve did an unbelievable job kind of walking through his journey, his whole career. Um, it's a really, really good listen. So again, make sure to check that episode out. Um, we touch a little bit about his newest project, Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited, but we're going to go more in depth with it tonight. So as I get started, I'm just going to ask you, Steve, um, why Pete? Well, in my in my view, he's he's certainly the greatest American male tennis player of all time. And perhaps at this stage in the public consciousness, a little underappreciated because of the great trio that followed him, Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. And nearly 20 years, it's been 18 years of passes. Pete played his last match at the U.S. Open, defeating Andre Agassi in the final, so ending his career in style. So long time has passed. I thought it was time to revisit Pete Sampras and to appreciate him in a new way so many years later. Because to me, I mean, he he's, of all the players I've watched, David, since I started following the game in 1965, I think I've had more enjoyment uh, watching Pete than anybody else. 18 years. That's unbelievable. I remember his last match, but I don't remember it like it was 18 years ago. I could tell you certain points in that match. And my God, you just, uh, you made me feel really old. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> well, I think you, he feels, David, he's about, he's going to turn 49 tomorrow, which is remarkable, remarkable. Unbelievable. Did you write this book with him at all? Well, no, it's a, it's a biography. It's a, so, so what I did was interviewed him extensively for the book. Obviously he'd already done his autobiography about six years after he retired, but we've had about a dozen years passed since then and I wanted to do it more from my standpoint as a reporter and also gather all kinds of interesting viewpoints from the likes of Edberg and Rafter and Wielander and Courier and Chang and even Isovich, et cetera. Even Novak Djokovic had some powerful things to say. So the story is told through his eyes but also through theirs. And often I went back to him with things that they had said about him, which were almost entirely were entirely laudatory. So it was it was a lot of fun putting the project together. I'm just curious, roughly how many, uh, you know, ballpark figure discussions did you have with Pete? And also how many discussions did you have with his, uh, his, his uh, colleagues, competitors, whatever you want to call them? <laughs> Hard to count. I started off with Pete in the, in the fall of 2018. And we did a couple of hours then and then followed up with a couple more hours in the, in, in December of that year. And then it continued into the next, I, I worked for a while, went back to him again the following April. It's really hard to say. It amounted to many hours by the time we were through, but the bulk of it was probably done in a, in a four to six hour stretch between the fall of 18 and the spring of 19. And then, but there still were several follow-ups and he was always very gracious in giving me time. Yeah. And his, uh, his colleagues, competitors, 
Well, yes, those I just kept hunting them down. Like Goran Ivanisevich was tough to pin down. I really wanted him because he played Pete in a couple of Wimbledon finals and a Wimbledon and a couple of Wimbledon semis, and they were really memorable matches and important ones. And finally, I got to Goran the summer of '19, and I I got to I thought it was important to get Rafter, who, who played Pete 20 years ago in the finals of Wimbledon when Pete was able to break the record for men's major titles with 13 on the center court and when he captured his seventh title. So it was, it was sort of a, a, a steady process of trying to reach these people all over the world. And I was pleased in the end that I got over, I, I think I had 23, 24 interviews all together. And I think the, the perceptions of these various players and some of the coaches were invaluable to the book. Oh, for sure. I mean, to get insight, not only from Pete himself, but to his closest competitors. And, uh, and as you know, David, he's a very modest, soft-spoken guy and he very interesting guy. And he had a lot of, of fascinating reflections, but he's not one to just uh, constantly bathe himself in self-appreciation, you might say. He's very modest that way, very self-effacing. So to get some of the others who were, were so uh, effusive in their praise, I think added a lot to the book. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in the start, you kind of mentioned your interest on in doing this project that he may be a little bit underappreciated. And, and you mentioned because there's three guys that are just, you know, out of this planet and they happen to be in the same generation playing in Fed Rafa and Novak. Um, you know, Pete played Roger. He, he never played Novak and Rafa. I'm sure he may have hit with them in, in some exhibitions. Of those three, Pete played. Pete, Pete plays most similarly to Roger. Is he closer to Roger than the other two? Is he? Does he have conversations with Novak and Rafa at all? And and I guess I'll ask you, what are his thoughts on these three guys? He's so he's enormously impressed with every member of that trio. He knows Nadal the least of the three. Maybe something of a language barrier, but more than that, for for a variety of reasons, I guess they just have never really had. They met, and when Pete went over to Australia one year, he presented the trophy, and Rafa lost the final to Stan Wawrinka. That was unfortunate. But I, I, with Novak and Rogers had a lot of interaction. The most with Roger. But it really doesn't – it's interesting you point out, it is true that Federer stylistically resembles Sampras the most. But I don't think that's really what the common ground was. I think they're just two interesting guys who, who had gone through the same journey at, at the upper levels of the game and enjoyed comparing notes and – you, as you said, only one match, 2001 Wimbledon. Federer won at 7-5 in the fifth. And he broke Pete's streak. Pete had won it from 97 through 2000. So he'd won seven of the previous eight years. And Roger, that was a groundbreaking sort of landmark win for Roger on his way up. But then they did play years later in 07 and 08, David, in, in four exhibitions. Yes. Sampras won one of them, lost another in two tiebreakers. And at Madison Square Garden, serve for the match against Federer. So I think it was an indication that I, I don't think that would have been a bad matchup for him at all. Not to say that he would have had an easy time with Roger. They would have had a phenomenal series if they could have both been in their primes. But I think he was very comfortable competing against Roger. No, I, I definitely agree. I wanted to ask you about Pete's mentality. And obviously his biggest rival growing up was, was Andre Agassi. And, um, I was one of those guys, and, and they're like four or five years older than me, so I grew up watching this rivalry. And I was one of those guys where I had such great respect to Pete for Pete, but to be 100% honest, I was an Andre lean. I, I kind of rooted for Andre in that battle, but it wasn't one of those where like 
oh, you either loved Andre and you hated Pete or you loved Pete and you hate Andre. I was not like that at all. I had so much. But you were unusual. David, forgive me for interrupting that. That's unusual. And it's nice to hear that because you don't get that very often among passionate tennis fans. It's usually one camp or the other. So that your, yours was a different kind of uh, outlook. Yeah, I was a slight Andre lean. Um, but again, I had so much respect for what Pete did. And, and the thing that just time and time he did, and I, I, I wanted to... I want to see if you asked him about it because so many times there, there were two scenarios I'd always go over in my head. He'd be down, Pete would be down love 40 and he'd come up with any combination you want, three aces and two unreturnables. And in 67 seconds later, he held serve and the guy returning was like, I didn't even have a chance. That that's the first scenario. And the second scenario is maybe it's not a love 40, but maybe it's 30, 40 and he's down four or five in, in a fifth set or whatever, and it's a second serve, and he cranks up 130-mile-an-hour second serve down the tee. I mean, how does he ha have that mentality? It's something that I can't even fathom. Did you go into that with him at all, how he pulls We that? talked a lot about, we talked a lot about the, the uh, faith that he had in his serve, the weapon that it became and how much he was able to rely on it, and, and therefore when he got into those precarious corners that you mentioned of love 40 or break point that just meant the stakes were raised and he, he he never shied away that i think is an underrated facet of him david was that he was a really a clutch competitor and not given enough credit for that people just thought oh it's so easy for pete he's just a natural athlete he's so brilliant he, he could do this in his sleep it wasn't that simple and the way he performed under pressure was absolutely remarkable to me and and you're so right. And of course, the classic case of what you're talking about was in the Wimbledon final of 99, three all first set against Andre Agassi, who's just come off winning the French. Pete's down love 40, and he won five straight points with a barrage of first and second serves that were just breathtaking. And Agassi never knew what had hit him. And Sampras went on to win that set 6-3, took the last two, four and five, and maybe the best match he's ever played, certainly the best big match of his career. So let me follow up. And I remember I, I heard Paul Anacone say this. I'll ask you the question. Um, you have one guy to serve out a match. And I think you and I agree there may be some bigger servers out there. Goran Ivanisevic had a nasty serve. You got a guy like John Isner, super tall. You know, right now, Riley Opelka, right? I mean, you may have some guys that are bigger servers. But I'm talking mindset. I'm talking pressure. You have one guy to serve out a match. Is Pete your guy? Oh, no doubt about it, uh, because, you know, again, the, it, was, it was knowing how to close. Jim Courier was saying in the book he thought Pete was one of the, great the, the greatest closer he ever saw. And that was, again, about pressure. It's like, okay, you go to the changeover. It's 5-4 in the final set, time to serve out the match. You don't get tight. And a great example of that is, again, against Agassi with a, in his last match in the 0-2 U.S. Open. And uh, Pete won the first two sets, lost the third, hard-fought, long set, come back in the fourth, and he breaks it for all. And serving for the match, you know, a couple of good first serves, and then at 30 love, 119 down the tee, second serve ace, it's 40 love, match over two points later. Just he, 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 There were other great ones, David. Becker was a guy I loved as a closer. John McEnroe was terrific in that role. John Newcomb in the previous era, the Australian, but no one better than Pete. Yeah, uh, you're in good company with saying that because I think you've got a lot of very, very, very knowledgeable people in the tennis industry that would, uh, that would agree with you. 
if there was one thing that Pete wishes he could have had, and I could say this on so many players, John McEnroe never did it. And you bring up that 1984 match versus Lendl too, and he's still bitter. He was up two sets to love and a break. Um, Jimmy Connors didn't do it. Um, Roger Federer did do it. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Roger after, but his lack of a French Open title. Did you also go into that with him during this project? Talked about it. You know, we talked about that before too. It's not a terribly big regret. Of course, as a great champion who won 14 majors, including seven Wimbledons and five U.S. Opens and a pair of Australians, two Australians, obviously he'd love to have, but not to the point where he would have traded in any of his Wimbledons. And I think he just came to accept the fact that things didn't go his way at the French. The best he ever did was the semis in 1996. So, but I don't think it's a deep regret because he also had six years in a row at number one. And you have to perform awfully well in a, in a lot of big situations to pull that off. That means winning tournaments like the year-end championships of the ATP finals and Masters 1000s as well as your slams. So, no, I didn't feel he, – he, the only thing he talked about regretting really, David, was maybe internalizing so much. He really put himself through a lot. He had a bad ulcer for a couple of years, and, and, and it, the, it was a lot of internal pressure that he wished he could have maybe – let out, maybe talked more to Paul Anacone and others about what he was going through. But that, that's about it, interestingly enough, that for, for real regrets from Pete Sampras. Yeah, I mean, it is so hard to do. And I've, I've mentioned this with a couple of my friends. You know, Roger Federer, everyone says, you know, he is the, the greatest of all time, and he is right now at 20. And I, and, and I have this conversation, and people who love Roger, they're very delicate whenever you suggest something that may not be something that he is the greatest ever. But you know, he won the French Open. Hey, David, let me just quickly interrupt you. That's so fascinating because whenever I've written about Roger and I've compared notes with other, with other writers too, if you say anything the least bit critical, his camp will really come after you in a way that the Nadal fans don't, the Djokovic fans don't, the Sampras fans don't. He, it's pretty unique. His followers are intensely loyal. <laughs> he's, he's so mild-mannered and calm about it all and, and quite classy in his way, but his fans can can be a little over the top at times. Yeah, no, the only thing that I was going to say, and he got it done, so kudos to him. I mean, he won all four. He's the greatest of all time. I'm saying in that 2009 French Open, Rafa was not a healthy Rafa, and Rafa lost early to Robin Soderling. Right, and right. I mean, there's a chance. I mean, if Rafa's healthy that year, you're never going to bet against Rafa on clay. Oh, definitely not. Let's face it. it. You know, they played, Federer and Nadal played the finals, the semis of the French in 05, and Nadal won that. Nadal beat him in three straight finals after that, and a fourth final later on in 2011. Case closed. I don't think it would have been any different in 09. Roger and took advantage of it. Good for him. Yeah. He, he still beat the guy that beat Rafa, but it really took that kind of an opening for him to win the French. And that's what I was saying. Like, it... It just goes to show you how difficult it really is to win all four. And Roger, and credit to him, there was an opening and he took it. I'll ask you, does Roger's legacy change a little bit? Let's say he still has 20. Okay, let's say he still has 20, but he doesn't have the French. Couldn't yeah, you would I, you would have to say that would change things because his other two main rivals from this era, Djokovic and Nadal, obviously do have all four majors in their collection. So that would be He'd be lacking that one. It, it could, could change things slightly. The, the interesting thing about Federer versus these other two, leave aside Pete and Rod Laver and the greats of the past, is that 
he will end up, it looks, unless he does a, a remarkable turnaround here in the next couple of years, and that would mean doing this past the age of 40, but right. he will have a losing career record against both Nadal and Djokovic. I think that's significant. I'm not saying it disqualifies him from being the greatest of all time. By no means would I say that. But it's an argument against him so that if Djokovic closed in on him, if Djokovic made it to 19 or 20 and had the winning record over both Nadal and Federer, he's got, he's got quite a case too. But yeah, I, and I will say we've had this debate with other people, uh, you know, the greatest of all time. Who hasn't had the debate? To Federer's credit, he was making very deep runs on clay court tournaments. So he was. he was always facing Rafa in the final or semis. Rafa was not, especially at the beginning of his career, was not always going as far in the hard court and grass court tournaments. So he didn't always face Roger as many times on Roger's favorite surface. That being said, Rafa has beaten Roger on grass. Roger has not beaten Rafa. He's beaten him on clay, but not in Roland Garros. Yeah, that's true. But I would say this. I still would take Pete Sampras, as I point out in the book, if you put down a nice medium to fast court indoors, hard courts, such as the U.S. Open, even the slightly slower ones now from what it used to be even a few years back, and then obviously the center court of Wimbledon, again, the grass slower now than what it used to be. I still believe with all of them at their peak form in those conditions, I take Sampras over, over all three members of that trio. I really do. Unbelievable. I mean, it would, it, it, it's something. And again, you normally don't get three guys in one generation. They're arguably the three greatest of all time. Um, it's something that's always fun comparing generations. And that's the fun part about it. We'll never know. And that's in any sport, obviously. Um, but it's True. fun for discussion. Steve, thanks again. Best of luck on this newest project. I can't wait to read it. I know it's out. Um, and we'll, it, it's going gonna, it, to gonna be great. And, and you, like you said, you hope to see a side of Pete that he normally wouldn't show because he is pretty reserved and mild man. Well, he had a lot of, he had some really interesting comments to make throughout the book, uh, looking back at his career from somewhat, from a different vantage point, even than the one he had when he wrote his autobiography, because now here he is going to be 49 years old and, and he can really reflect in a different way. And I think he had a lot of terrific things to say, as did all of his rivals about him. So I hope people will, buy the book and it'll actually be officially released david on the first of september is the official release date can't wait to read it best of luck and keep doing uh all your great work because you have contributed so much to this sport thanks again steve david thank you very much i appreciate that